Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. Glad to be here at the end of this week. Uh, I'm joined as usual by my good friend, portfolio manager Lance Roberts, and we are here for this week's weekly market recap. Lance, buddy, how you doing? I'm great this week. It's been a good week. <laughs> I'll bet. So um, for those that haven't been watching, the S&P is up about 100 points so far this week. Pretty steady up week, uh, up every day this week. Um, and I got to hand it to you, Lance. You called it. Um, you had told us that uh, buy signals were in place. And even though things were looking really pessimistic with you know the banking crisis and all the other things that we've been talking about, you were saying, don't be surprised if this market uh, rips higher. And uh, at least that's what we got this week. Yeah. And, and again, we're probably not done yet. We probably still got a couple more weeks of, of move higher here. Now, it's not going to go straight up, right? I mean, it's probably going to, you know, sell off a little bit, maybe Monday, Tuesday, and then have another rally towards the end of the next week. Um, but yeah, we're, we're not overbought yet. Buy signals are firmly in place. They're nowhere near overbought right now. So, um, you know, over the last couple of weeks, we've been adding equity exposure to the portfolio. That's been working well. And at some point here, we'll get those signals back to very overbought conditions and we'll take profits and, and reduce risk accordingly. But Right now, there doesn't seem to be a lot standing in the way of the markets at the moment, uh, particularly after we cleared the 50-day moving average yesterday um, and then really followed through today you know, on, on Friday. So we've now cleared really the only kind of resistance level until we get back towards 4,100 to 4,200, uh, which is where we were back in February at those peaks. Um, so we've got a little bit more room to go over the next couple of weeks. And April tends to be as the second strongest month of the year also. Uh, and we're still in a seasonally strong period. So kind of a lot of tailwinds here. Okay. Um, and it's interesting you said tailwinds. Um, <clears throat> so I, I was reading um, some premium Goldman Sachs research uh, right before getting on here, and their big technical guy there, Scott Rubner, I believe is his name. Um, he says that, quote, technicals are extremely favorable starting today. Yep. And he, he basically had had you know, said, look, the first part of the year, uh, markets had a headwind in them, in their face. Now, though, they've got a tailwind. Um, yeah. So he he feels similar to you. Um, I was going to ask you about the technicals, but you already sort of pre-addressed them. So we kind of broke through the last big ceiling the market had to crack through to start to run here. But let me ask you this. So, um, you know, you and I have have several, many times already sort of talked about the arc of where the markets could go this year and the fact that recession is still kind of looming out there and whatnot. Let's say we get a run up to 4,200 or so. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know you're not the bull, you're not the bear, you're the eagle, you're just up there looking, is it overbought, is it oversold? Yep. Uh, of course, if it gets to a point where it's oversold, you'll say start lightening up. But but do you see this run as, as something that could sustain throughout the year in general or like is this the last hurrah, more like a last hurrah, like to, to sell out, you know, at good prices before maybe there's another leg of the bear market? Well, there's, you know, look, it, you know, and so this weekend's newsletter that I'm writing right now, and we'll have it published tomorrow at realinvestmentadvice.com, is it's kind of talking about this very thing, right? On, on one side, you've got every really historical good recession indicator to a recession, right? So the six-month rate of change of leading economic indicators has a perfect track record for predicting recessions. That's in recession territory. Inverted yield curves, we've talked about. Our economic composite index, which has 100 different data points that covers everything from manufacturing to service to 
uh, even international and leading economic indexes, that is also in recession territory. So, and that has a perfect track record also of, of predicting recessions going back to 1970. So, you know, there's, you know, all this data out there that says, hey, the economy is going to go into a recession. And yet, economists right now are raising their economic growth rates for the rest of this year. S&P, which, okay, take fact set, throw it out the window. It's mm -hmm. complete crap. Never use fact set. S&P is the one that produces the earnings estimates and they're gap-based for the S&P 500, right? So if you ever want to look at earnings, look at what S&P Global produces. That is actually suggesting that earnings are going to rise to the peak of January 2022 by the end of next year. So quarter one will be the trough in earnings, according to the S&P. And by the end of next year, earnings will be back to where they were January of 2022. So that's a very optimistic outlook. And we talked about, you know, we talked about last week, I think it was last week, um, that, you know, look, if you're a buyer of gold, all you care about is real interest rates. Whatever direction real interest rates are going, that's what tells you to buy or sell gold. When it comes to the market, it's about earnings estimates. And right now, those earnings estimates are moving up, not down. So that's giving a tailwind here because investors are looking at the valuation of stocks going, yeah, they're expensive right here. But if earnings grow by the end of, of next year, that valuation is not so expensive. So investors are starting to buy stocks in anticipation of a recovery in earnings. And, here, and here's what's interesting, right? So since January, 88% of the rally this year has come from 10 stocks. I wrote about this back in, in uh, October of 21, because at that point in October of 21, now remember this is before, uh, you know, this is the tail end of the whole- Before the wheels came off, yeah. Right. 80% right? um, of the rally was being driven by those same 10 stocks. And of course we had 2022. Well, we're back to that. And, and what was interesting is November of last year, and you and I talked about this when we were doing the interview, I wrote that stock, I said uh, that article called Are Fang Stocks Dead? Because everybody was saying technology's dead, nobody's on Fang Stocks anymore, it's over, that- and you have, you know, well, you know, what we said then was, is don't count them dead yet. Everybody thought energy was dead in 2021. It was the best performer in 2022. Don't count FANG stocks out because everybody thinks they're dead and they're typically not. This year, FANG stocks, your best performer, energy is your worst performer. So, you know, it, it's just this rotation in the markets that's going on and, and, and investors are making bets on where they think the economy and earnings and the markets are going to be. And right now that bet is no recession. I don't know how you get there, but that's what the bet is. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. A couple questions on that. One, you mentioned um, yield curves, inverted yield curves as a predictor of recession. You've always said you, you get a, you get a notice when the yield curve inverts, but then you get a watch when the yield curve uninverts because that right. means the, the fuse is lit, right? Right. We've got some yield curves that are really uninverting right, right now, right? Okay. Yeah, the the 10-2 in particular is starting to uninvert. So uh, again, it hasn't uninverted yet, but yeah. So so the, the statement is always that the warning sign of a recession is the inversion of the yield curve. That just warns you that a recession is coming. The uninversion tells you it's arrived. And so we're starting to see the 10-year, two-year uninvert, which tells us we're actually closer to the beginning of that recession than not. But again, everybody's saying that it's not going to occur. So Okay. 
So this is this is my this is the question I'm sort of working up to here. So I put out this on Twitter the other day, um, and it really was an honest question. Um, the um, the market is predicting the Fed is going to be cutting rates starting by mid year. Right. I, I think right now it's projecting. Uh, the Fed's going to start cutting from uh, a, a federal funds high of around five, which is projecting where it's going to be around May, down to about 4.2% by the end of the year. And the trajectory continues downward into 2024. Right. Um, so Powell has you know, basically said, look, there's uh, pivoting is not even on my roadmap right now. Right. I'm going to I'm going to hike and then pause and hold it there for a long time. We've talked for a long time about how, you know, the thing that's going to force him to pivot is going to be some systemic rescue he's just going to be have to force to do. So if the market is confident at this point from its predictions that something is going to be so bad, it's going to force Powell to pivot by summer, why is it in rally mode right now? Because it is highly likely not to be for bullish reasons at the time. Right. So if you check your Twitter, I responded to you. Um, so, and I said, my, my response is, how do you spell relief? The old Rolates commercial, right? Yep. How do you spell relief? L-I-Q-U-I-D-T-Y. So, and I'll give you three charts. Uh, one is our liquidity measure, which is the Fed funds balance sheet less the TGA account, less uh, reverse repo. And there's been a huge spike in that liquidity measure and the market tracks that liquidity. So, you know, despite the fact that you know, we have all this other stuff going out there. The, the Federal Reserve has already reversed back into providing liquidity through two measures. One is, of course, the expansion of the balance sheet. Now, that's not QE because those are loans to banks, but it is an expansion of the balance sheet. But number two, and a much bigger issue, was the opening of the dollar swap lines that they did to help bail out Credit Suisse and UBS and that whole and the whole European banking issue. So those are always the first steps. Whenever the Fed has opened dollar swap lines, the next thing to come is more liquidity. So, you know, this is this all goes back to the article that I wrote called Pavlov's Experiment, which is which discusses um, Pavlov's experiment with the dogs, where he would ring the bell and they would start to salivate in anticipation getting fed. Well, for twelve years now, we've been teaching investors. The ringing of the bell means to buy stocks. And when you open those dollar swap lines and expand the balance sheet, most investors don't understand where the balance sheet comes from. They don't understand quantitative easing. They just know if it goes up, you buy stocks. Mm -hmm. And that's the ringing of the bell. So we've rung the bell. And what the markets are now expecting is, is more liquidity. And that means stocks go up. Okay. Um, so I guess first off, uh, so the market's reaction is a very short-term one than just, yeah. I heard the bell, I'm salivating, <laughs> right? Exactly. Uh, um, but uh, so, you know, is this kind of the the rush of the crowd into the the building before it becomes the towering inferno that they're all stuck in, right? And and I don't know, but I just, I just want to go back and get your thoughts for a second on this, like, if the market is expecting the Fed to be cutting rates this dramatically, later this year, then kind of de facto or ipso facto, it means that something broke badly enough to force Powell to do that. So, I mean, let's fast forward to, to July and let's say that's true, right? Yeah. Powell says, oh my God, X has happened and I've got to abandon my the plan I was super serious about to, to deal with this. 
do you expect the market to be in rally mode in that type of environment? Um, probably not initially, but, you know, look, two things are, you know, I'm not, I don't want to say the words this time is different because I'm not saying that, but there is a difference this time in this one, in this one fact. Previously in history, when the Fed was hiking interest rates, the market was still going up. And this is why you always hear a lot of statistics that are thrown. It's like, hey, whenever the Fed starts hiking rates, markets are up 20% over the succeeding year. And that's true. And when the, mark, when the Fed's hiking rates, markets are still going up. We, we talked about momentum in the markets. And of course, people are going, well, yeah, the reason the Fed's hiking rates is because the economy, economic growth is still strong. They're just trying to slow it down a little bit. It's all good. When the Fed starts cutting rates, that's where you have the bear market because that's where the Fed realizes, oh, crap, I broke something. Right, right. I've got to cut rates. Now the market is trying to backpedal on all those expectations and you have the decline in markets. Here's the difference. The Fed started hiking rates last year and the market declined 22% last year. So the market pre-declined in front of the Fed rate cuts. And that's different. That, that hasn't happened before. Going back to all the other previous rate hiking cycles, the, the decline occurred after the rate cuts started, not before. So two things to think about here. And again, I don't have the answer, but here's the two things you have to consider. One, how much, so it, let, let's say come June, the Fed starts cutting rates because the banking crisis reemerges. Yeah. Okay? Pick, pick a topic, right? Bigger yeah. banks. Let's say it's now the JP Morgans of the world that are in trouble. It's not going to be, but I know, but but for the argument's sake. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't want anybody going out going, oh, Lance said JP Morgan's a fell. <laughs> big banks are fine. Don't worry about big banks. And you know, so that's a different story. Uh oh, let's just say it's a recession, right? We just, you know, it, it, we get into a recession this summer. Okay. Well, the problem is now investors are going to go, okay, well, here's the recession. We all knew it was coming. That was clearly obvious. We've already reduced the market value by 20% on, on the broad margin, but look, a lot of stocks in the index are down 60, 70, 80% from their peaks, right? So we just, we, we took a whole lot of that bear market and front loaded it. So it, could the market rally even as the Fed starts cutting rates to solve some economic or financial crisis? Yeah, because the market's already built in a lot of the expectation for that event. They, they preloaded it basically. So yeah, the market could go down, you know, if, 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 if it's an event that occurs quickly, like we wake up tomorrow morning and five banks have failed, the market's going to go down and the, the Fed's going to step in, they're going to cut rates, they're going to supply a liquidity line, the market might decline five to 10% somewhere in there. And then the market's going to stop because they're going to realize that's already been priced in. Here comes the liquidity. Now I've got to start buying stocks. So there is a very high probability the October lows were the low of this cycle. And so I think that's one thing you've got to kind of keep in mind. A lot of people keep expecting we're having this another major leg down on the bear market. It's possible. I'm not saying it is not possible. I'm not even saying it's not probable. I'm just saying that there is a real possibility here that October was low. You're starting to establish a lot of very bullish trends to the markets, the 50-day above the 200-day moving average. The 200-month uh, moving average and the 200-week moving average held support. So technically, that correction last year was just that. It was just a correction back to the long-term bullish trend that started in 2009. We bounced off that nicely. And the market should, theoretically, if this, if this secular bull trend is going to continue, we'll hit new highs by next year. Okay. Um, I appreciate that. I'm curious. Um, 
if if last October's were the lows, would that surprise you? Um, and I ask that both for sort of your macro outlook, but also just we did not see the capitulation that one tends to sort of see at, at the bottom of, of of a bear market. And you would say, hey, that we're, we may not have been in a bear market. It might have just been a downward correction and an otherwise uptrend, right? Yeah. No. So first of all, look, if we retest October lows, it won't surprise me at all. Um, if we and, and if we don't test them, right, and this market keeps going higher, that won't surprise me either. A lot of it's just going to depend on what market's doing. Right now, since October, the market's been a, the market's been way more bullish than the headlines, right? I mean, we've we've talked about you know all yep. these other issues and headlines and all the you you know all the YouTube podcast everywhere and the the news media and the, you know you you name it everywhere. So it's like recession's coming, the world's ending, and Markets have been grinding higher since October. Yep. Markets really just ignoring all the all the all the talk and going, right. hey, focus on what's happening here, right? And which is what a bull rally does, right? I, or bull market, right? Which is yeah. it climbs a wall of worry, right? There's been a lot of worry and it's been climbing. Yep, yeah, can't yeah. deny that. And it doesn't mean that it can't continue. Um, and, and you know, and this is what this is the big challenge of managing money, right? And we talked about this before. It's like you know, this is doing something that that logically doesn't make sense to me. You know, logically, I look at all my economic data and says, just as we just talked about, right? All my indicators say we're having a recession. Logic says we should have a recession because the Fed's hiking rates. We're extracting liquidity from the economy. The consumer's highly indebted. They're slowing down. I mean, there's, I can't make an argument of, of how to not get in a recession at this point. That, you know, that's the, that's the big challenge. And then on the other side of this coin is Marcus is grinding its way higher. And look, I do expect the markets to pull back decently probably this summer. And we will know then whether or not that we're in a more serious next leg of the bear market decline or if it's just a buying opportunity. And But we'll know when we start to get there. We're just not there yet. So, um, okay. So uh, I want to put up a... The, the chart, one of your charts there about liquidity, yeah. um, that that shows that um, you know we, we saw this big jump in the liquidity index recently, right? Yeah. Um, you know, if you put a, a chart of of liquidity, uh, you know, next to the S and P over a long period of time, I mean, the the, the correlation is ridiculous, right? <laughs> And I've had lots of discussions with a number of the folks that come on this program, which is like, are we just overanalyzing this? Yeah. <laughs> like, should we just basically look at liquidity and that's telling us where things are going, right? And and it's hard to kind of argue <laughs> with that. So, you know, your point is, is hey, look, you know, liquidity uh, in this environment, you know, increased starting around October and lo and behold, we're off the October lows and the market's been resilient since, right? Right. Um, <clears throat> I want to ask you this about um, uh, a potential coming liquidity crunch. Um, and uh, I got a couple of different things here I want to just mention, then you can react to them. Um, yep. One, uh, here's a chart of M2, right? Money supply is measured by M2, uh, showing that it is contracted by the most on, it's contracting by the most on record right now, right? All right, moving on from that, uh, the Fed is still hiking. Uh, sorry, hiking. It's still hiking and tightening, right? Uh, hiking. Maybe that's what we can call when you munge rate hikes and QT together, right? Which but both of those, both of those are still in play. Um, 
the Fed has, you know, Jerome Powell was telling us, he said, hey, in addition to my efforts, the banks are now going to be tightening lending standards even further based upon these banking issues that we've been having. Right. And then last, um, I mentioned this when we talked, I think last week, um, at, at some point when the debt ceiling is raised, which I think everybody has a high confidence it will be at some point, Janet Yellen's going to need to refill the TGA. And I know I asked you about this last week and you were like, ah, it's not big enough to matter. And, and maybe that's the case, maybe it's not. Um, I was talking with Lynn Alden about this, who actually said it's a pretty big deal. I mean, it's hundreds of billions of dollars um, that will be not going into the economy that the, that's being pumped out by the TGA right now. And then people, you know, with, with the Treasury then having to sell treasuries, um, capital is going to be coming in to buy them that might otherwise go elsewhere for investment too. So she said that might actually trigger a short-term liquidity crunch. So you take kind of all those four things I just mentioned together, you can come up with an argument that liquidity might actually start tightening later this year. Maybe it is what causes the dip by okay. summer. I don't know, but I'm just curious. What do you think about the potential for this, this surge in liquidity we're seeing right now to kind of get undone by some of this stuff? Yeah, I know. The, I, look, I, you know, when you start you know, it's starting to have to re kind of calibrate things. And again, and, and Lynn's right, is that, you know, one, and we talked about this before, is that, you know, one of the big fears is, is that, oh my gosh, you know, we're taking all this money out of the federal pensions and they're not going to have their money. That all gets repaid, right? So as soon as we get the debt ceiling raised, anything that was borrowed in order, and that's what these emergency measures are, basically they're borrowing from other pockets of money within the government. Um, they issue new debt that repays all that. So it, it all gets put back to where it was. So there's no big fear over that. But it, it does mean that we have to issue more treasuries. But see, right now, that's not really a problem because we've got people buying treasuries hand over fist. How many people have you told on this show to go buy, you know, go buy five percent oh, yeah. of your treasuries, right? And these are all short-term debt that gets put out there. These aren't 30-year bonds or necessarily, you know, a lot of right. this is short-term treasury. I would say Wealthion is responsible for like 80% of all T-bills sold in America. I, I would I would agree with you. <laughs> but no, I mean, you know, even, even with us, right? We have a, you know, we we are regularly buying T-bills um, and putting cash to work. And we have, well, there's $5.2 trillion in money markets right now. Uh, by the way, that is not money on the sidelines, but there's $5.2 trillion in money markets right now that's all short-term treasury bonds, right? So there is plenty of demand to buy bonds. So yeah, we may be, there may be a short-term reduction in the amount of liquidity in the markets um, or in the liquidity measures. But if that occurs, very likely this is going to coincide with some other event within the markets, either with, whether it's a banking issue or whether it's a credit issue or whether it's an economic issue, that the Fed is now coming in and supplying liquidity on some other side of the, of the ledger, either through expansion of their balance sheet or through some other, you know, increasing reserve repo lines or, or whatever it is, just like we just did with the deposit windows, right, for a lot of these small banks to get you yeah. know, capital from. So, you know, there's, there, is, there is going to be an offset. So the question is whether or not the amount of liquidity increases and how dramatically does it increase or decrease. And the market will follow that one direction or the other. So if we do get a reduction in liquidity, markets will decline until that begins to reverse. Okay. All right. Well, I just wanted to flag that out there for folks. Yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, if it does start happening, obviously we'll be tracking into this oh. channel and, and reporting back to folks. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think this is key to something you said just a second ago, by the way, which is, you know, is liquidity all that matters? 
and unfortunately, yeah, it's all that matters now because this is this is what we've trained markets to do. Fundamentals don't matter. What are the worst performing stocks this year? Fundamentally strong ones, right? Which are the ones that are best performing? You know, fundamentally the most expensive ones. Uh, you know, but you know, so we don't invest on on fundamentals anymore. We don't invest on economics anymore. We don't invest on those things. We just simply are looking at what the Fed's going to do. Or what are they doing and which direction is liquidity going? That's how simple the equation has got. And if you're, you know, worried about all this other stuff over there and you're not paying attention to those factors, you're you're kind of missing what's driving the markets. Yeah. All right. Well, look, um, we'll we'll be keeping <laughs> a close eye on these liquidity gauges as we go forward from here, folks. Um uh and you know. It, I'm trying not to fall back into the rant pit of this Frankenstein that the Fed created, right? Because <laughs> uh, it is a Pavlovian response. Yeah, you and I are both in the pit. I, I don't like it. It just is what it is. Yeah. All right. Well, look, um, uh, I want to I want to grab the conversation into a totally different topic, um, which is just one that's in the headlines right now. I just recorded a, a, a video on this a few hours ago on de-dollarization. Um, real quick before we get there, Lance, is there anything else about the current market action we haven't talked about yet that you think is worthy of people knowing? Yeah, look, uh, just let's boil it down to the simplest factor right now, which is, look, our job as investors is to make money. That's it. Um, we've talked about before, you know, trying to avoid the next downturn or bear market will, lo will lose you more money than the downturn or the market downturn itself, right? Um, just focus on what the markets are doing right now. And we'll keep you updated. So as things begin to change, we'll say, hey, look, our indicators are very overbought. We're taking money off the table. So go take some money off the table. Right now, you can put some money to work, but just do so cautiously. We're not 100% exposed to equities right now. We just modestly increase our equity exposure to take advantage of this rally. And then we'll reduce it when this rally is over. I don't know, and, no does, and nor does anybody else know what this market's going to do, much less next week than six months from now. So, right. you know, it just, you know, all this other conversation, it's great for headlines. It's great for getting clicks and views and all that. Look, I write articles about recession, this recession, that it's great views, right? But the reality is, is when it comes down to managing money, it's important to understand these things and what the impact could be. But we also need to respond to what the markets are doing and participate accordingly and just do so sure. safely. Great, great. And you're, you're reminding me of that answer that that we really pretty heavily focused on equities in the conversation so far. Uh, and of course, with with bonds, um, we've been talking about, um, you know, the fact that we may be getting near uh, the end of the rate height cycle. Um, I think when I asked you this, you said the peak in yields is highly likely in. Yeah. Um, and so um, just do you have an update in terms of what you guys are doing with the bond side of your portfolio right now? Yeah, we know. So just before the uh, like four or five days before the FOMC meeting, I told you that we had, had increased our bond exposure. Um, bonds ran up at that point. That was when the banking crisis right after that, we had the banking crisis. Yields fell pretty sharply. Uh, unfortunately, that those yields got those yields fell so sharply that bonds got very overbought short term very fast because of that very sharp, sharp drop. So now we're just kind of letting that work off a bit. So we'll we'll probably be adding more to our bond portfolio, but we need to see yields come up a little bit and bond prices come down. We're getting pretty close to an entry point. I won't be surprised by next week when we talk if we're not adding more bonds. Oh, really? So you think that could could come yeah, it, that quickly then? Yeah, well, I don't know. Uh, again, it'll depend on what the market does. 
Um, it could be a week or two or three. So, you know, but it just depends on how fast prices or yields move over the next two weeks. So, and that'll, and that'll be a negative correlation to what, if the market, in other words, if stocks rally, so here's all you need to know about stocks and bonds. If stocks rally, that's a risk on event, right? So that sucks money out of safety. So everybody that ran over there to money market or to one of your treasury bills or seeing the market run up and going, oh crap, I did the wrong thing again. So they sell those and go buy stocks, generally right at the top. So, right. so you get that risk on to risk off trade. So as the, the market goes up, it's going to suck money out of bonds. That's going to push yields higher. And then when stocks get very overbought and get ready to give us a sell signal, that'll probably be the time we want to be buying bonds again. Okay. Yeah. All right. Because great. it'll be risk off. It'll be risk on back to risk off. Back to risk off. And, and okay, so that's that's sort of bonds generally. Um, of course, we've been talking a lot too about duration of bonds, right? And you were more more short term loaded. You were beginning to extend a little bit. Um, yeah. I think I asked you last week. Did we sort of miss the opportunity uh, to to buy more out long? And you had said no, but you were going to potentially wait for a bit of a correction before you continued adding long. Is that still true? Yeah, yeah, and, and we did get a little bit of a correction, uh, not enough yet. Um, but no, you have not missed the peak in rate. I mean, look, I think the peak in rates is probably behind us, um, but you still have plenty of opportunity to buy bonds because if we you know, look, and this all, if we get into a recession, if all of our indicators are right and we do have a recession, yields are going to go to sub one percent on the ten-year treasury. So you know, there is a lot of capital appreciation still to be made in bonds. You haven't missed that train right at all. Great, great. All right, and just to remind folks too, let's see what what are what are ten year what's the ten year yielding right now? It's like three point six. Yeah, it's like three point five five. I I can't see my computer <clears throat> from here. It's too far away, and I'm too old. Um, okay, <laughs> but, but around but around three point six, and you're saying it could go sub one. Um, and, and what's nice about that, just a flag for folks, right? Not recommending this necessarily as a trade, but you can put some money in the ten year and get paid three point six percent. To sit there, no matter what happens, uh, and then if Lance is correct, or if the the um, the market predictions that I shared earlier are correct about the Fed pivoting and beginning to bring rates down, you know, you're still going to get paid, um, but the price of your bond could appreciate and appreciate pretty nicely. I mean, if we went to sub one, it would appreciate an awful lot, right? Yeah. Uh, well, and, and if you're going, there's no way the the market could go sub one. Don't forget, in March of 2020, we went to half a basis point on the ten-year Treasury. So. Yeah, it can get there. And, and it wouldn't even surprise me to see if we get into a really bad recession uh, and the Fed's really starting to cut rates hard, that the yield could go literally to zero on 10-year treasuries. That would not be outside the realm of possibility. So if you think about that relative to the decline in yields versus the price in bonds, there's 40 to 60% upside on 10-year treasuries. Yeah, yeah. And, so, and look, that, that that's not a guarantee, but but the fact that it's it's in the realm of the possible. Like it, you, you don't, you know, it, it's it's not a fantastical thing that could happen. You've said, you know, we, we've seen parts in relatively recent history where we've seen even greater changes in the interest rate. And, and the fact that you can get paid to take that not crazy gamble. Yeah. I mean, you don't get too many opportunities like that in investing, correct? Well, so here's, so let's analyze that trade for just a second. So here, here's your choice. You have $100,000 and I, and I say, what are you going to do with it? You, just, I, you only have two choices, Adam. You can either put 100% into stocks. You can't do one or the other. You have to either choose 100% stocks or 100% 10-year treasuries. And you go, well, 
I think we're going to have this terrible recession, so I don't want to be in stocks because I could lose half my money. It's a fair call. Nothing wrong with that call. So you say, okay, I'm going to put 100% into bonds. What's my upside? What's my downside? Upside is that yields wind up falling towards 1% over the course of the next 12 months. Um, when you get down to that level, the price of the bond will have appreciated markedly, again, 30 40%. You'll want to sell all your treasuries at that point. You don't want to hold them because you've milked out all of the price appreciation of the bond. Right. And at that point, stocks are going to be very cheap. So I will end with a high yield. So I'm now going to move from my 10-year trade. I'm going to take my $100,000 is now 140 and go buy equities with it at dirt cheap prices. I'm totally wrong, though. And the economy doesn't have a recession. The stock market takes off. And here you are sitting on your poor little 10-year bond yielding 3.5% for the next 10 years. In 10 years, you're going to get all your money back plus 3.5%. It ain't a great return, but it's not a sharp stick in the eye either. Right. It's not like a catastrophic loss that the way yeah. that equities could be if you if you get the equity story wrong, right? Yeah, you know, folks, right. I'm not 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 making this, it's not a guaranteed trade, not saying everybody should run and do this, but I'm just saying you you, you don't get kind of a not so bad downside, really pretty good upside trade off the way that you have right now for the next 12 months, right? Yeah. And and, and again, that's this is why, you know, I've been buying more, more and more treasuries for myself personally, just because you know, it's a it's a fairly obvious trade that if the Fed is going to start cutting rates, yields are going to come down. There's just no way around it. Okay. So. All righty. Well, now moving on to <clears throat> this topic of, of de-dollarization, and we don't need to spend a, a huge amount of time on it because, uh, like I said, I, I just recorded and, and we did it live. So it's already available for folks to watch. I uh, did an interview with John Rubino uh, on this topic, um, <clears throat> and I'll, I'll put up a link to it uh, right here. Um for those that want to watch it after this. Um, but this has been uh, all of a sudden kind of everywhere in, in the news. Um, I, I found it ironic that there was an article that came out yesterday that said uh, it was about this topic, but it, it had a, a segment that CNN did in it and a segment that Fox News did in it, right? So you've got sort of the the, the polar ideological ends of the media spectrum are all embracing the story again suddenly. Um, and, you know, it's basically... You know, first off, folks, th this is a process that's, that has been going on for a long time, for decades. Uh, you know, the central banks around the world have been slowly weaning themselves off of uh, or, or slowly decreasing the percentage of dollars that they hold um, in reserve. That's still a very high amount. I I'm doing these numbers from memory here, but um, I think it's something that was like, you know, 20 years ago, it was in the 70 percent. Uh, and now it's down to like 59% of world reserves, right? Um, and, uh, but what's happened, you know, relatively recently, past couple of days and weeks, there's been a number of announcements by, you know, big countries, China, Russia, India, Brazil, Mexico, Saudi Arabia, uh, that they are entering into, you know, trade agreements that have always been settled in dollars uh, and are now settling those in other currencies besides dollars. Um, we've seen um, uh, certainly since the the invasion of Ukraine, where the U.S. basically weaponized its financial system against Russia, we've seen a number of central banks, um, foreign central banks, um, accelerate uh, their you know the amount of dollars, uh, the de decreasing in the amount of dollars that they hold uh, in their uh, on reserve, 
Um, and so, you know, we're, we're, we're basically, we've, we've been seeing this understandable acceleration, you know, since America's uh, response to Russia, because obviously a lot of these other countries are saying, hey, you know, I, I've got maybe decent relationships with America today, but that might not always be the case. And I'd see what they're doing to their enemies now. I don't want to be so exposed to, to a tactic like that. So, you know, we've kind of given the world this catalyst to try to, you know, start doing trade and things other than the dollar. Um, so Lance, I'll let you comment on this as to whether how, how, how big of an issue you, you think it is. I'll just underscore the, the really big issue I think that that most folks are concerned that most folks have around this is the fact that the Saudis are really beginning to strike deals for oil, not in, in dollars. And, and probably the greatest privilege that the US dollar has enjoyed for the past 50 years is its status as the petrodollar. And if that gets broken, there's a lot of people, including um, the Fox News segment, had the former assistant treasury secretary on. She used words like catastrophic. Um, I, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to be too inflammatory here, but there's certainly officials out there that you know think if that were to really, truly, indeed happen, that that the implications could be quite, you know, quite severe. So, anyways, Lance, I'm curious. Yeah, everybody's spun up on this right now. Um, are, are they spun up for good reasons or is this not no, a big deal? It's not a big deal. You know, and it's it's great. Like I said earlier, this is one of those topics that keeps running around. It's like great for headlines, right? right? Got everybody to view and everybody's like watching videos now for people's like, oh, the dollar is going away. So we're going to lose reserve currency status. Okay, let's go to the very basics of how the world works. Okay, so first of all, let's just talk about why the world has 59% of their money in US dollar reserves is because it is the reserve currency. So if I, so where are those reserves held? They're held in US dollars. So let's take everything off the table and let's just talk about countries at all and saying, okay, I need to execute trade on a worldwide basis and I need a place to have a common exchange currency to do these transactions. Right now, that's the dollar. So 59% of the world's currency is stored in US dollars in those reserves, right? So that's what we talk about reserve currency. So let's take the let's take the US. So let's assume that all these headlines are right and the reserve currency status goes away tomorrow. Okay. Now your choice is, as every other country, including the US, we now have to all figure out which currency we're going to use as the reserve currency to execute trades. So there's a couple of things that have to have to have to happen to allow that to occur. So first of all, the currency has to be deep enough and large enough to handle trillions of dollars of transactions every year. So everything that you buy and sell, commodities, products, services, goods, anything else, that currency has got to be very deep. The second thing is it's also got to have a relative, what we call full faith and credit backing to it. So no matter what happens, you know that currency is going to be valid. It's going to be there. And it's, it's, there's a, a structure behind it to allow claims to be made so that if I'm selling a product to Adam, Adam's in Germany and I'm in the US, I sell Adam a product and he faults, uh, he defaults on his delivery. I have an ability through recourse of some legal manner to go get my money from, from Adam, right? So gotta have some, some type of, of legal structure foundation behind the full faith and credit that the, that the currency is gonna be made whole at some point. And then, of course, lastly, there's got to just be a safety factor. So, in other words, what 
you know, let's say we're all going to pick China and we're all going to use the yuan as the reserve currency. Do you really trust China, the Chinese government not to just wake up one day and go, yeah, you know, we're sitting on $50 trillion worth of, of currency. Yeah, we're just going to keep it. <laughs> so, you know, when you start talking about, you know, World War III and these other things, World War III is not going to be fought, you know, on the ground with tanks and planes. It's going to be financial. It's going to be economic. It's going to be cyber. You know, it's going to be all these things that are going to happen. So would you really trust China as a, as a country of store of value for a reserve currency. And I'm not saying that, I'm not giving you the answer. I'm not saying yes or no. I just want you to think about this process of the, of the reserve currency. So this is why, yes. And now, now there's a couple other things that are going on that's causing this other you know, transactions to occur. What's the big problem right now that France has as an example with LNG? Well, they can't get LNG from Russia for a couple of reasons. One, Russia won't send it to them, but there's also sanctions. We can't buy stuff from Russia. And at the same time, so that caused the price of LNG to go up, right? So, that, so LNG got much more expensive. Now, if I've got to buy that in dollars and the dollar was very strong, which it has been, I now have to pay this exchange rate, which means that LNG is even more expensive. So not only do I have inflation in all these products, I also have to deal with the currency exchange ratio that is not favorable, that's making these products even more expensive than they were just on an inflation adjusted basis. So the logical thing to do would be to cut a deal. And this is why only 59, and even at the height when we were at 70 something percent of reserves, there's still other transactions that are going on in the world in other currencies. Otherwise we'd have hundred percent of the reserves, right? So this is just a workaround for these countries to say, look, I need to offset this dollar exchange strength. When that reverses, these transactions will all go back to dollars because it'll then be in their benefit because they can they get more value. For, so in other words, if the French franc is stronger than the US dollar, they'll go, let's do it in US dollars because now I really get a bang for my buck. I get more product for less money because of the exchange rate. So. You know, it, it, these things make a lot of headlines in and in, 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 will U.S. reserve lose reserve currency status at some point? Maybe it might be a couple hundred years from now, but, you know, it's not going to be in our lifetime. Right. It's just, you know, so, again, this goes back to be careful. And look, I, I don't care what your view is. You, If, if your view is, is we're going to lose reserve currency status tomorrow and this is all going to hell in a, ba hell, hell in a handbasket. Cool. Right. I'm not saying whether your view is right or wrong. I'm just saying from an investment standpoint, this is something that is not going to affect the markets in the near term. And something that if we do see it coming, if, if all of a sudden we wake up in five years from now, we're down to 20% reserve status, we might have more to talk about. Right. But we're not anywhere close to that right now. So again, focus on what's important near term and we'll just keep a watch on these bigger issues. And if they become an issue, we'll deal with it. Okay, yeah, and, and I, I think the key thing out of this is, you know, I, I, I think there's probably, a, and this is just one guy's opinion, right? I mean, I think there's, there, I think there, there is some real movement on geopolitically to say, hey, look, you know, the U.S. has been calling the shots for a long time, and can be pretty heavy-handed at times, uh, and uh, a lot of the countries that are doing this are countries that you know, not aren't friends. necessarily America's best buddies, right? So there's a little bit of a coalition of the like, hey, you know, we we, we should probably do this well, as, Adam, as a hedge. But yeah, but Adam, think about it, right? So China, Russia, India, Pakistan, Middle East, 
you know, we, we have, uh, what have we done as the U.S., right? We're imposing sanctions on these people. We've invaded these people, you know, uh, you know, they're not our friends. They're not our, our, our allies. So of course, right. they're going to figure out some way to trade outside of the dollar because A, if they try to use the dollar, they can't because we sanction them and freeze their assets and do all other kind of stuff. So sure, they're going to find other ways to do stuff. And, and that's not surprising, you know, but the, the question is going to ultimately be, is the whole world going to go in that direction? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, totally. And that, that, that's where I'm going, which is, and most importantly, what I'm going is, is even if it's going in that direction, like, let's just say that that is, and we lose the world currency status and reserve currency status and all that stuff. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It, it's going to be a process. And I'm, I'm trying to avoid people calling you Lance and New Harbor, you know, after they watch this and say, oh, my God, get me in non, you know, 100 percent non-dollar denominated assets. Right. It's 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 not the fuse isn't that short here. Right. Let me give you a good example. I got an email from one of your viewers this week. Right. Um, so really nice guy wrote me a, an email. He says, I need to get out of the U.S. dollar because I heard that, you know, this is all going back. And so he's like, I've got investable assets. So what I'm thinking about doing is, is I'm going to put, you know, X amount of money in U.S. real estate. I'm going to put X amount of money in foreign real estate. And then I'm going to move to Puerto Rico and, you know, I'll put the rest in, in stocks. I go, you have not solved your dollar problem. Right. Because and, and it's still living in a U.S. territory that operates in dollars. But OK, I won't think about it. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> so, you know, but, you know, buy U.S. real estate, you've got to do that in U.S. dollars. That's fine. Now, you got an income producing property and I don't have any problem buying real estate. So that's good, but it's done in US dollars. Buying foreign real estate, okay, great. You, you do a currency conversion because that's the way to, look, just, just can we take one step back here real quick? This is important to understand. Dollars never leave the borders of the United States. When you buy something overseas or you, do an, you make any other purchase anywhere else in the world, US dollar never leaves the border of the United States. This is why China buys so much in our treasuries every year is because they're sanitizing transactions. We buy 50 billion a quarter, whatever it is from China. If China took all those sales back into Yuan, the strength of the Yuan would rise dramatically relative to the dollar. And that's not economically advantageous for them on a trade basis. So what they do is instead of taking those dollars back into to Yuan, they buy treasuries with it. And that's what we call sanitizing trades. Mm -hmm. And so they, they sanitize those transactions. And so back to our, our real estate issue. Now I buy, uh, I buy real estate in a foreign country. I do get my money out of the dollar that way, but I buy property that doesn't appreciate near what you get in the United States. So I've kind of got an asset that isn't going to really do anything other than maybe generate some Airbnb income if I lease it out, right? Mm -hmm. So it, you know, I'm not going to pick up that, that price appreciation that you would have in the United States for that, that real estate. Right. So, and you get some diversification, which is good, but then you also yeah. get additional country risk, right? Where Correct. And then, of course, you're investing in stocks, that's in dollars. So, you know, it, 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 so, you know this is, you know, there's a lot of talk about, I, I, I get a lot of emails from me, like, I need to get out of the dollar. You, you don't, because the dollar is still the dominant currency. And, and at some point, if you do need to get out of the dollar, the question is, is where are you going to go? Then that's that's going to be the real issue because there are, there are plenty of times in history where um, countries have gone, yeah, we're just going to take that asset. I had an investment in Malaysia back in the late 90s and the Malaysian government said, yeah, we're just taking that. We're just and, taking it, yeah. Yeah, that's it. And so you know, <laughs> there was no recourse from that either. So those, those are the things you have to, and this is why we've talked about on the show more than once, the rule of law. 
The rule of law is so incredibly important to the strength of an economy. And unfortunately, our political divide that we've got going on right now is destroying that rule of law. But that is the one thing that drives economic wealth and prosperity over time. Right. And and even, even though we can make a lot of criticisms about the rule of law in America, it is still in most cases sort of like a best horse in the glue factory type of factory where a type of issue where a lot of these countries we're talking about, you know, the rule of law there, it's just night and day compared to where we are in America, night and day worse, right? Um, so th there's there's a lot of things I want to tie up here uh, before we move on, um, uh, which is, look, you know, all these things can happen at once, right? So um, uh, it, what I mean by that, it, it, it probably, I think it's probably, it's probably probable, I think it is, that this this de-dollarization trend is going to continue. Again, it doesn't mean that we're going to lose world reserve currency status overnight, but what will probably happen over time is more and more trade will be done in other currencies and there will just be more competition, right? But I think that means there will be less demand for dollars as we go through this. And of course, nothing happens in a straight line, as you said, Lance, you know, there may be times where, you know, all of a sudden everybody wants a dollar again for a period of time. But, um, you know, it's, and especially if the petrodollar really begins to break, right? What it does mean is the we as Americans have enjoyed a massive advantage, which I don't think we can deny by by the setting up of, of the current, you know, monetary regime with the dominance of the dollar and the petrodollar and all that stuff. And if that erodes, we just need to be cautious about what that could mean, right? And that would that will likely mean more inflation uh, for a variety of reasons, you know, weakening dollar, but also if indeed these BRICS countries continue to strike more of, of these types of deals, and, and Zoltan Posnar over at Credit Suisse has been writing about this for a, a lot, you know, he says, look, more and more commodities, right? A lot of the countries that are banding together in the BRICS are the commodity producers. And it's, he says more and more global commodities, A, you know, may not be priced in dollars going forward. And look, a dollar will always buy something, right? But he said just the supply of them is getting increasingly encumbered by these other countries, right? So, you know, 30 years ago, there wasn't a ton of purchasing demand out of China, right? It's night and day now, right? Where they're driving Teslas in China and want to, you know, same lifestyle that we in the West have, right? So, you know, those companies, those countries have, have grown, you know, to a size now where their economic clout, especially collectively, you know, is pretty darn big. And so, there, you know, we may, as America, want to go buy commodities the way we always have. And they'll say, great, we'll sell them to you. But just so you know, we, we might not be able to sell you all you want because we've already guaranteed this supply you know, to this part of the world, right? So we just got to be aware that these may be the dynamics going forward. And yeah, maybe that creates opportunities for assets that are commodity driven or, or you know, because there's more demand competition for them or for hard assets versus the dollar because they'll hold purchasing power better than, than dollars might you know, over the arc of what's coming from here. Um, but but I do want to end this with your point there on, on rule of law, Lance. So Michael Every, um, who's been writing about this recently, um, it's interesting because he's actually worked in China a lot and he grew up in Russia. So he has real firsthand experience in these countries. And, and he likes to kind of remind people that they're, you know, whether you think they're evil geniuses or whatever, he's like, I've been to these places. Like they're they're... They, they just don't have the capacity to, um, uh, you know, 
sort of emerge as the dominating winners that that sometimes when we get nervous in the West, we think they could be. I remember a couple of years ago, we all thought we we're going to working for our Chinese overlords, right? Yeah. Um, he just said they just have really structural problems, you know, internally that 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 are real and kind of big, right? So kind of to your point, Lance, about like, um, you know, who do you want to trust? He's like, really for these regimes to like really knock the the, the US dollar off its world recurrent currencies platform, uh, um, pedestal. Um, he said, you got to get to the point where people are willing to retire in China and store their money in Russia. Yep. Right. And when you think about it that way, you're like, okay, yeah, I don't know a lot of people who are psyched to do either of those. Right. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. You know, and, the, and like I said, and then you go outside of China and Russia, then you start getting into Brazil and uh, South uh, Argentina. And those currencies are just not big enough, deep enough to handle transactions. Right. And, they, and those currencies have histories of just yeah. dying every 10 years, right? <laughs> exactly. And so, so, so again, you know, look, uh, here's the point about all this is like, uh, again, I don't care what you want to believe. You believe if you think the world's going to end on the reserve currency status, that's fine. You can invest accordingly. Um, just realize that, then, and Adam may be very right that this will eventually occur, but it might be 30 years from now. I'm probably not going to be around. Um, in 30 years or 40 years or 50 years. These things take very, very, a very, very long time for these things to occur, unless you get into a massive world war, then things can change very quickly. But at that point, none of this is gonna matter. Right, and for folks worried about that, just to preview, I had a, a really great discussion with Matt Heipenberg of Matterhorn Asset Management this week that's gonna air next week. And uh, and that's sort of where he takes it is, is sort of like, we weren't talking about de-dollarization specifically, but just sort of all the macro trends. And he's a big student of history. And he said, yeah, what you gotta watch out for is currency destruction, inflation, and war. And uh, if, if, if that's an exploration that you're interested in having folks keep your eye out for that, that video. Um, all right, well, look, so I wanna go on from here and it's gonna sound, for, I'm gonna warn folks, it's gonna sound like I'm just taking cheap punches at America here. <laughs> I, I'm not, um, but what I'm trying to do is sort of make the point here that, that we have enjoyed a, a lot of advantages that the rest of the world has allowed us to have. Um, and, uh, we may be going into a period where you know we, we're losing some of those advantages, or maybe we didn't necessarily deserve, or, or maybe our current behavior isn't deserving of them. And we're seeing an erosion of things that I think we just take for granted with the concept of American exceptionalism. So I wanna dial through a couple of things here, Lance, and just get your response to them. Um, okay. I, again, this is not to crap on America, but it's just to say, hey, we as Americans, we gotta be the eagle. We just. We may love our country, we may love our culture, but we got to be just realistic and eyes wide open and honest about what's going on, right? Um, so we've got the de-dollarization that may be building steam from here. Um, uh, real quick, uh, you know, I want to dial through a few things. One, U.S. spends more on healthcare than nearly every other country, right? We've heard this, yet it has the lowest life expectancy of the OECD countries, right? So when it comes to, you know, spending money and keeping people healthy and alive, uh, we don't have the best system out there. And we just got to be honest about this. It's crazy expensive. And you look at the stats, you know, we're, we're, we're not the healthiest for what we spend. That's, that's not really, that's not really a true statement in terms of yes, expensive. Yes, because we pay for all the R and D that, you know, we don't provide to other people, but also there is a vast difference between the quality of healthcare that you get in the United States versus other countries. I've lived in other countries. 
And yes, you get healthcare there, as which is taken, you pay through your taxes, it's free, it's cheap, uh, it's not great. In fact, most people that live in other countries, there is a private healthcare system that they pay for out of pocket, which is much better healthcare, or they come here to the United States to get treated. You got, if you've got cancer, there's only one place you go. Don't you disagree that we have the best healthcare here. It's just not evenly distributed. <laughs> no, it is. If you want healthcare anywhere in the country, you get it. You get it for free. You just have to walk into an emergency room. You can't pay for it. You're going to get treated. That is that is the bottom line. You get healthcare. The reason healthcare is more expensive is because we pay for those people that are getting free healthcare. So right. somebody's going to pay the tab somewhere, but you're going to get healthcare. And you're going to get good quality healthcare. Period. The reason our life expectancy sucks is because we have the world's worst diet. We don't exercise. We have the worst food on the planet. It's all high in fat, high in sodium, high in potassium. And we don't exercise. We are the most, one of the most obese countries on the planet. Every other country that I've lived in, you eat very healthy. Most of the food is, is right off the well, I lived in Spain. All the food came right from the farms to the market. You walked to the market. You bought your food there, took it home. You cooked it. It was clean. It was healthy. And they walk everywhere. Every night they're walking. They're drinking wine. They're walking somewhere. Uh, same way when I lived in France. Same way when I lived in Germany. Same way when I lived in Switzerland. You know, there's a very big difference between the quality of the food that you eat in other countries and how you eat in other countries versus how we eat in the U.S. So you can't blame the healthcare system for lower life expectancy without blaming the diet and exercise of Americans themselves. And again, we got all these kids sitting around playing video games all day, not going out and exercising. That's why we have the highest obesity rate of teens on the planet. And that's a terrible statement to make. The military can't even hire, get, can't even recruit people because they can't pass the physical fitness test to get into the military. So it's just a terrible statement to make all around. Well, you're preaching to the choir, and we have ranted about this before, so I, I won't, I won't repeat it here. Um, I, I will note that the um, the biggest reason for why our longevity is lower than these other countries um, is. Uh, we have more younger people that die, which surprised me when I saw that. And I don't know if it's from obesity or if it's from violence or whatever, but it's that our younger population is dragging that that longevity down. Um, that being said, though, I agree a thousand percent with yeah. the, the fact that we have, and, and, and just to sort of tie it back to the medical industry, I'm from a family of doctors and nurses. Um, every one of my, my family members that's gone to medical school were given zero uh, classes in nutrition yep. going through there, right? It's just, it's just still not part of the. Right. And, and, and you talk about, you know, yes, we do have a lot of deaths of our, of our younger generation, but let's look at that. Right. So first of all, they are obese in a lot of cases, they, they don't eat well, they don't exercise, but we now give them pills for everything. Right. I'm sorry. You're not happy. Here's a pill. You're a little stressed out. Here's a pill. Uh, you can't sit still. Here's a pill. Can't focus on your study. Here's a pill. Um, you know, where, you know, if we went back to the way I grew up, which was, I'm sorry, you can't sit still. Here's a smack upside the head. You can't right. <laughs> Here's a smack upside the head. You know, get outside and play and drink out of the garden hose because that is your antibody for everything. You never get sick once you drink from a garden hose and survive <laughs> that. that trip. So, you know, but, but you know, this, this is part of, of society that we've bred over the last decade. And, and yeah, our, our mortality rates are going up. Our fertility rates are going down. You know, you we've, know, we've got these addictions, fentanyl, all that stuff, right? These yeah, epidemics. And, yeah. And, and, and look, I mean, even we had this whole vaccine rollout and now there's all kinds of data coming out on that as well. 
So, you know, whatever the end result of all this is, I think you can always point it back to the fact that if we just took a breather here for a minute and started talking to people about better education, better health, better diets, exercising, you know, as, as, look, and we're not talking about going to the gym and sweating it out for an hour and a half or getting on um, Adam's bike for an hour and, you know, posting videos of, of you know, your accomplishments. That's just rude. Um, but, you know, but I'm just talking about taking a 30 minute walk with your spouse. You know, if you want to do one of the best things for your marriage, have dinner with your wife, go on a 30 minute walk with her, hold her hand and talk to her. If you want the best return on your investment outside of anything else, that'll do it for you. You'll get it. You'll get improved health. And I guarantee you, you'll have a much better relationship. All right. Well, hallelujah. I totally agree with that. You're treating this as a rant, which I guess you can, but it wasn't intended to be one. But okay. I'll stop Good points. Good <laughs> points. Uh, but basically, being the eagle, we spend yeah. more than other yes. countries yes. on healthcare, and we're living less, right? Yes. Okay. Um, not sure there's okay. support, but okay. A a education, not that great either, right? No. We're, we're middle at the pack at best in education, and we spend way more on it, right? Right. Okay, so let's talk about that, cause and causality, right? So China spends 2% on, 2 to 3% on housing and about 15% on education. The United States spends 25% on housing or more and about 2% on education. We stop teaching our kids. My wife and I just had this conversation last night, right? Because we've got three kids in, in you know, college and high school and one that's out. Our kids were not taught how to critically think. They were taught how to take a test. And this, is, this has become a big problem since 1980, when the Department of Education took over the school systems. Prior to 1980, schools were run by states. After 1980, the Department of Education took over and the quality of education has fallen and our, our standing in the world in terms of mathematics, science, you know, et cetera, have fallen dramatically. We used to be in the top three, four. Now we're behind Estonian on education of, of math and sciences and these type of things. And the big problem is, and I saw this with my kids coming up, and this is why I hired all my kids tutors, is because the teachers in school are instructed to teach, and, and, and I don't know what it is in every state, so I'm just gonna talk about Texas for a second. But in Texas, we have what's called a STAR test. And the teachers during the, during the school season teach the kids how to pass the STAR test, that's it. And so we no longer teach kids how to read, how to write. You know, my kids are bringing home the Mockingbird, you know, uh, uh, what was the, uh, uh, the movie? Um, I, I, can't think of the, I can't think of the name of the movie. It was, it was a trilogy of movies about a girl with a bow and an arrow. I'll think of it in a second. Oh, The Hunger Games. The Hunger Games. Thank you. I appreciate you. That's what my kids are bringing home to read in English, not bringing home, you know, Chaucer or Shakespeare or Tennyson. Well, when you, know, you said... A mockingbird. I thought you meant to kill a mockingbird well, by Hopper Lee, right, one of the great American novels. Yeah, right? no, no. It's, it's, that's what they should be reading, right? Yeah. Uh, but we don't. Uh, our kids aren't being taught the way that we were taught, and, and you know, we're trying to come up with all these new ideas. And you know, now math is racist, so we've got to dumb down the way we do math and all these type of things. You know, we're getting rid of entrance exams for colleges because those aren't fair to everybody. You know, we're trying to, you know, by trying to make things easier for everybody to succeed, you're lowering the quality of the education that they're receiving. And then we're all upset as to find, well, we're paying for all this education and we got stupider kids. 
you know, there's there's a correlation. It's not the it's not the money we spend. It's what is being taught from that money that's being spent. And you're not getting a good product for what you're paying for. And that's what we need to start revisiting is how to educate our kids to be smarter. You know, I'm spending all my time teaching my kids. I pay school taxes. They're basically, you know, when my kids were in high school and intermediate school, they were babysitters. Well, so I could go to work. And when I came home at night, I had to teach my kids things, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, that's not the way it should be. I had to teach my kids history and math and English and all these type of things that they should have learned in school, but they weren't taught these things in school. So, and that's the frustrating part for me as a parent. All right. So I'm sure there's a lot of people who are, you know, saying you go Lance, you know, they're, <laughs> they're feeling that same pain as you. I agree with everything you said. Um, as it comes to financial education, I know we've had folks, you know, ask in the past, um, hey, it'd be great if, if you know, Wealthion or Wealthion and Lance's firm, you know, did a, a webinar on helping raise, you know, financially well-educated kids because our school school system does not teach financial literacy. That's like a core reason why I founded Wealthion, right? Yeah, um, big zero. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, folks, if that's something that folks are still interested in, let us know in the comments section below. Uh, if if interest is still high, we'll bump that up on the priority list here. Um, all right, so uh, I'm going to move on here because you're making it really hard for me to slog through these points quickly. <laughs> all right, I'll, I'll just shut up. You just go through your points. You just no, this next one, you're, I, I'm actually going to want you to chime in on. Um, uh, and then I'm getting to my main parting point on this whole theme. But um, so uh, Cracker Barrel just announced that they are leaving Portland. They're shutting their stores down and they're just leaving Portland. They're saying it's just not a good place to do business anymore. Walmart made the same decision before them, right? So we have a you know a, a major uh, American city that basically you know major commercial operators are saying it's not worth it for me to do business there. It's like it's too unsafe, you know. The, 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 there's too much crime, um, and it's just not worth the ROI for us having to you know get robbed and and having to assure the safety of our employees in a really dangerous area. And it's just easier if we just leave, right? So, you know, Portland, I mean, it's been probably, I don't know, 15 years since I went there. It's a beautiful city or has been a beautiful city. And it, it's it's kind of your, you know, West Coast jewel city in most folks' minds where it's beautiful and everyone's out doing stuff and it at least used to be clean. I mean, it, it was getting all these awards for like the, the best design city in terms of managing sprawl and growth and uh, fairly affluent to, to, to my understanding. Um, but now parts of it have just devolved. I almost want to say like into war zones. And and, and I just want to share a story with you that a, a, a wealthy on viewer um, has been sharing with me. He's been kind of chronicling his, his family's adventure. It's uh, he and his wife have a young kid and he was pigging me, telling me about how he was really hoping eventually to get out of there. And as I was learning about his story, I mean, the reason he wants to get out of there is because his neighborhood has basically turned into a war zone. He was talking about how in the baby's little nursery, they have Kevlar vests hung on the walls in case a stray bullet comes through the house, right? They're, they're, they're that concerned, or they, they were that concerned about their physical safety. He had a car that was stolen not that long ago, and uh, he had the, the like low jack tracking in it. And so he called the police and he said, okay, my car's been stolen. It's over here right now. Uh, and the police looked and they said, oh, it's in that region. 
Uh, yeah, it's going to be a while before we have enough officers to go into that part of town. So they weren't able to go get the car for hours and hours after it was stolen, even though they knew exactly where it was. By the time they found the car, the car was considered totaled by the um, by the insurance company, not because it had been wrecked, but because right. so much meth had been smoked in it until the police got there that it was like a biohazard now, right? So, uh, you know, we've heard similar stories about parts of Seattle that are almost kind of like police no-go zones. We've had issues in, you know, Minneapolis and all different parts around the country. My, my, my point here is, um, you know, we, we, we have this idea of narrative American exceptionalism in mind, but a, a lot of, you know, what made this country great, there's a lot of great jewels that are now getting pretty tarnished. And it's, we, we need to be having an honest conversation with ourselves as a society to say, look, is, is this the trajectory that we want to go on? Or, you know, do we need to stop our current behavior and adopt things that put this in a better trajectory? I mentioned I was talking to Matt Pippenberg earlier. Um, he's an American, grew up here um, and uh, spent a lot of time all around America, but he now lives in Europe. And uh, had, he had lived out in the Bay Area. He said he came out here a few years ago and he said, it's just not the same place. You go to downtown, you know, parts of downtown San Francisco, and it looks like the walking dead, right? You've got just, you know, blocks and blocks of homeless people, but but a ton of them there are super mentally, you know, challenged and you know, mental health issues. But but a, but a huge ton of them are just, you know, terrible addicts they're terribly addicted to fentanyl and these other strong drugs where they're just walking around in a stupor and it literally looks like a movie lot you know from a, a zombie invasion yeah. movie so anyways i'll let you chime in here lance but well uh, you know it's i'm a little perplexed as to why you're a little confounded about how this occurred because you know look Back in the 60s and the 70s, right? We had dr sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? But I'm so, not confounded that it occurred. I'm just saying that that yeah, I, I right. think it's occurring to an extent that we are not admitting to ourselves at this point. Well, yeah, but you, but and and look at the differences between you know areas of the country where this is happening, right? What are the what's going on in Seattle and Portland and San Francisco in particular, uh, Baltimore, Chicago? What's going on in those cities in particular that has led to the rise in crime? Right, defund the police, and we're not going to convict people for stealing. Right, you can right. watch this. CVS is pulling out of cities because you walk into CVS, you loot the store, and walk out the front door. Nobody does anything about it. You know, there's there's no criminal charges filed, etc. It's just so why not steal, right? And this is because this goes all the way back to you know this whole view we have. Look, the majority of Americans are not far right and far left. They are right in the middle. And, you know, even even conservatives that fall slightly right to the middle, which is a big chunk of America, have some views that are on the left. So in other words, you can be a conservative Republican and be pro-choice, right? right. Um, there are people that are, are on the left side of that aisle that are more democratic and, and more leaning in that direction, but they're pro-life, right? They have views on both sides. And, and until the, the really the late 90s and really this started to really deteriorate in 2008 with the election of President Obama and after that, um, you know, there was a there was a, a general agreement on the right and left politically about some basic foundations in life rule, the, the rule of law, you know, basically being decent people, not and, and drugs were bad. 
you know, pornography was bad. There were some kind of some basic agreements. And so we didn't have a lot of these problems that we had because there were things put in bay. And then now we've kind of gone to the things like, well, you can be whatever you want to be now. You can do whatever you want to do now. Uh, if you want to do drugs, hey, that's all good. Don't don't worry about it. You you just be you. And that's all fine and dandy, except you, you've got to have some control over society because if you don't have it, you wind up with anarchy. And we're and you know, this is the whole point about having rules and, and laws and things in place is to keep people from just doing whatever they want to do, because you've got to have that structure or you get anarchy. And, and we're slowly kind of moving in that direction kind of more and more. So at some point, you know, I keep figuring out that, or I keep figuring, not figuring out, but at some point I figure that people are going to come to their senses and go, wait a second. This all sounded great in theory, you know, defund the police. Let's do that. And, and people are just going to be good on their own. They, we don't need a police department. People will just be good on their own. They won't break the law. Okay, we know that doesn't work. So we go back to, to enforcing our, our, our laws, right? So we go back. And I, I figure at some point, we're going, to, we're going to push the pendulum in one direction. And people are going to go, hey, I don't like that. Let's move the pendulum back more towards the middle. And maybe we'll get some sanity back into all this. And, and like I said, I don't care what your political leanings are, right? You can hate this guy and hate that guy. But, you know, at the end of the day, what do people want? They want to be safe, just like your, just like your guy, right? I want to be safe. I want my children to be safe. I want to be able to go to work and make a living and take care of my family. I want to go to church or I don't want to go to church, whatever your choice is, you know, I want, I want just basic stability in life. You know, as individuals, we don't want a lot. We just want to be happy, safe, healthy, and have food on our table. If that's pretty much covered, you know, life isn't terrible. Um, and everything else is just kind of, you know, things we work towards. But, you know, it's getting to where now is that even just wanting some of those basic things in life, you know, there's, there's a group of people over here that says, well, if you want that, you're, you know, you're this or that or the other thing. And if you don't want this over here, then you're this, that, or thing. We got to stop that nonsense and we got to get back to just look, you know, you know, kind of the golden rule, you know, love thy neighbor and, and do unto others as you want them to do unto you. And, and life works pretty good under that under that philosophy. Yeah. And so I agree with everything you say. My, my closing point on this is um, I, I'm just trying to wake people up to the fact if they're not already awake to it, that um, again, we 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 have this narrative of American exceptionalism, we are used to the great advantages that we have enjoyed. And to a certain extent, culturally, I think we we think we deserve them because we're the shining city on the hill and, and all that stuff, right? Sure. But we're, we're not looking in the mirror to realize that, you know, the, the shine is kind of wearing off and we've kind of been letting ourselves go a little bit. And, and that's manifesting in the domestic issues I just ran through. But it's also correlated to internationally, right, where America really was, you know, post-World War II era held up as, you know, the big force for good in the world. And, and now, you know, a lot of countries are like kind of turned into kind of, you know, a, a bully. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we didn't really agree with. They kind of forced us to do and they started in, in exporting all their inflation to us. And when we get in trouble with them, they, you know, weaponize all this stuff. Again. So. My, my point is, is just we're, we're on this sort of downward trend and I don't know where it ends. And Lance, I hope you're right. I think you're right. But I hope you're right that, you know, everything is cyclical and we get to a point where everybody says, look, this is not how we want our cities to be. This is not how unhealthy we want to be. This is not how uneducated we want our kids to be. 
and the pendulum starts shifting back, um, you know, towards where we want. And of course, that means we as a populace have to take on the responsibility of identifying those values, embracing those values, and then demanding them of our elected officials and holding them accountable. Hey, Maybe that's it, crazy talk. Who knows? No, but. It, but it's not. That's what I was saying. You know, you know, if you if, if you were alive in the '60s and the '70s, you know, it's always interesting, right? We go through these periods and we go, yeah, this you know, this generation's lost. They're they're done. It's just you know, it's it's over for them. Um, you know, back in the '60s and '70s, that was the way that generation was viewed, right? They were you know, spitting on soldiers coming home from Vietnam, rioting. You know, doing drugs, sex, drugs, rock and roll, yeah. right? Get a haircut, you hippie. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly, right. And so that generation was a lost cause, and then they grew up into adults, and they go, you know what? That really doesn't work well, and they turned it around. And we had the '80s and the '90s, and we had a population that that worked and produced and created and. And we had a strong economy and, you know, elected Ronald Reagan into office and, you know, all those type of things. And, and yeah, did we make mistakes along the way? Sure. Absolutely. Right. We can numerous of them. Yeah. But, and, and I want to say, too, just because we have a lot of boomers watching yeah. this channel. You're right. But at the same time, too, like a lot of what that generation was involved in doing did a lot of great things back in the 60s and 70s yeah. with the, you know, civil rights movement and the women's absolutely. movement and all that stuff. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And look, some of the, look, there's a lot of good things that are going on right now in our economy. And, you know, all, you know, things that people are wanting, you know, but, you know, people that, you know, that, that are, you know, having riots and wanting, you know, better equality for the, you know, for individuals. I'm all for that, right? I mean, we should all treat everybody equally. Everybody should have access to the same opportunities. One, one group should not be advantaged over another group. That's, you know, that's, we should all be working and wanting to move towards equality. There's a lot of things that we're doing that are not healthy for the economy. And we need to think about those things. And, and, and you know, just giving into groups simply because they squeak the loudest isn't necessarily the right thing to do. Um, and we need to realize that. But, you know, back then, you know, these, 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 these kids grew up and, and they realized things and they changed. And as you get wealth and, you know, there's a, you know, I, I wrote an article a while back about the Titler cycle, which talks about how economies evolve over about a 200 year period. And you move from, you know, this working, you know, you, you basically start with nothing and then you, and, and, and you're very religious focused because that's all you've got at that point. Right. But as you move towards wealth and prosperity, then you start, you know, kind of getting rid of that other stuff and, you start moving towards greed and, and these type of things. And, and we're in that later stage of the cycle. You know, uh, the wealth in the U.S. is head and shoulders above everybody else. And to your point, we were this exceptional country where capitalism ruled. And that's all still there. We're just ignoring the basic principles of what allows that to work because it's not advantageous for elected officials to stay elected or it's a disadvantaged group that is we're trying to, that we're paying more attention to than other groups. And, right. And, or it's a cartel that's resisting change. Yeah. All that yeah, stuff. Yeah. Exactly. And at some point, you know, the, 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 the engine of economic prosperity and wealth and, and those type of things, it's all there. But look, this is a responsibility of the Federal Reserve. This is also the responsibility of the government. You know, we have stopped allowing, and we talked about this before, you know, you got to stop bailing out banks. You've got to stop bailing out recessions. You've got to allow these things to occur because that's part of the capitalistic cycle. 
And if you don't do that, you wind up with these distortions in wealth that cause all these other problems. And, and look, one of the big problems we have right now is wealth inequality. And we've got 10% of the economy that owns 90% of the wealth. That should not be that way in a capitalistic system. But it's because yeah. we don't allow the capitalistic system to work. We have corporatism. Capitalism is fine. Capitalism works great if it's allowed to work. We have corporatism, which is a different problem. Yeah, to totally different problem. And I, I, I got to move on here just to just to get close to the end because we've been here for almost an hour and a half. Um, but but a couple of things. One, I'm just going to put up this image real quick because it's exactly what you were talking about, Lance, which is uh, the, the hard men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create bad times, right? And that's sort of the cycle of history. You and I have talked about the learnings from the um, the book, The Millionaire Next Door um, by Stanley and... Um, Oh gosh, I'm blanking on the other guy's name. Is the one that I've actually interviewed uh, begins with a D. Um, but uh, they, you know, two PhDs who uh, basically surveyed thousands of, of millionaires uh, and found out that most uh, wealth, or at least most self-made wealth, was lost within a generation, and it was because the children of self-made millionaires. Um, uh, it's not that they were sp spoiled and just spent it all on you know, Gulf streams and whatever. Um, it was that their parents had to really struggle to become successful and they wanted to shield their children from the adversity that they had had to deal with. And, and the thing is by shielding from them, th them from that adversity, they precluded them. They, 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 they prevented their children from developing the muscles to be successful wealth stewards themselves, right? You think it's an act of kindness. It isn't. And and I think in many ways, it is this embrace of adversity that is really what we need. In other words, yeah, at the corporate cartel side, they don't want to have anything bad happen to them. They want all their all their gains to be private, but they want all their losses to be socialized, right? We need to end that part, right? Yeah. But also, you know, we are, I, I don't want to say that we shouldn't be, you know, offering assistance to help certain types of, of you know, disadvantaged populations, especially during particularly hard times. But so much of right, right now is geared to trying to not let anybody feel any pain. And what that does is it distorts basically the, the, the mechanics of capitalism, to your point, right? Yeah. You know, there have to be winners and losers in capitalism. That's that's the price you pay, right? Is there has to be losers to have winners. But a capitalist system that's run freely and fairly, history has shown, helps the greatest amount of people generate the greatest amount of wealth per capita, which then right. can be reinvested in, you know, keeping the whole society healthy in general. You're nodding as I'm saying this. So uh, I'll, I'll end it there because I'm sure we could continue talking about this forever. Um, I, I just want to mention some data. We don't go, won't go into it. We can go into it next time if we want to. Um, but the uh, University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment came out. Uh, that's dropped for the first time in four months. Uh, the core PCE numbers came out. Um, they are declining. Um, but they're still extremely elevated at these levels. And the, the key one that the Fed looks at, um, it, it came down, but, but just barely. Um, the, the core PCE went from 4.7 to 4.6, right? So my point here is, is, you know, end of the day, the Fed's number one priority right now still is to bring inflation under control. And that is not happening on a rapid pace at this moment in time, right? So for everybody who's expecting the Fed to pivot soon, I'm not saying it's not going to pivot, but it's going to have to be something pretty damn bad to force the Fed to pivot because they are nowhere close to their inflation goal. And Powell, you know, just spoke recently and he had the opportunity to try to walk up, 
you know, the, the Fed's inflation target, and he didn't. He repeated 2%. I'm going to 2% many times during his discussion. Yeah, he did. And look, and, and by the way, what you're talking about is Fed fund futures that are predicting rate cuts. The Fed is not predicting rate cuts this year. So the Fed- no, absolutely. I, I, I hope I've been super clear in that. Powell is yeah. not predicting any. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is a big divergence between what Wall Street expects and what the Fed expects. And, you know, normally the market is right. And normally the market is, is right in that they're cutting rates, but the, the rate cuts wind up being more than even what the market expects. So, but is this time going to be different? With inflation hanging up tough right now, is the Fed going to say, yeah, I'm not cutting rates as, as soon as the market thinks it is? And if that's the case, then we could see a repricing in equities. So we'll see. Yeah. And, and Powell was asked that at his last press conference. Say, hey, there's a big difference with the market thinks and you thinks. And he said, yeah, <laughs> he's like, it's not my plan. You know, yeah. my plan is to hold tight. So, you know, yeah, the market it, didn't it, buy that, by the way. Pardon me? The market didn't buy that, by the way. And the market, market didn't, didn't yeah, exactly. <laughs> the market didn't buy that. So, you know, if the Fed is indeed playing for, you know, credibility or whatever credibility it has left here, you know, it is not going to pivot unless it absolutely has to or has just an incredible get out of jail free card. Like we have another world pandemic where we're shutting down the global economy thing, right? So, my point is, is for the Fed to pivot, it's probably going to have to be something pretty darn bad. Um, home prices, there's a lot of updates there. I'll just go with this one quote by Robert Schiller, the developer of the Case Schiller uh, Housing Index. Um, so really, you know, the country's preeminent scholar on home prices. And he said, quote, home prices are very, very high by historical standards. I would extrapolate the downturn somewhat. It's going to continue Maybe if you have a good chance to delay your purchase, it might be a good time to do it. Things might even get a little cheaper in, after another six months. So, you know, this is sort of the Fed, like they don't want to tell you a recession's coming because they're going to create it. He's got to be careful with his words. But this is the equivalent of him saying, guys, there's going to be a pretty nasty housing correction here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So last thing, trades. What trades have you guys made this week? Um, so last week we added uh, some index positions. We added more of those on Monday. Um, so again, just kind of banking on this rally here. These are trading positions we're adding. So they're, we're using either S&P or NASDAQ uh, ETFs uh, for that. And so basically we've just increased our portfolio allocation to equities in that manner because those are easy to put on and take off. And, and so again, we're just kind of trading this rally from here. Um, and again, with you know what's interesting about this market is that it's pretty much ten stocks driving the market. So if you don't have a, a heavy allocation of those ten stocks, you're underperforming the market. We're underperforming the market this year because we have these stupid things called value stocks in our portfolio, which I don't understand why we own them. <laughs> they're there um, because they provide four percent dividend yields, but you know they're just they're not doing anything. Everything is in the, the top ten stocks. So yeah, well, this is this is the Bill Fleckenstein and Michael Green giant mindless robot in action, right? Yep. Capital's flowing in and it's pre-programmed to go into those stocks based on the okay. way that all these ETFs are allocated, right? Exactly. It's, it's the passive indexing issue we've talked about before. So Yeah. All right. Um, all right, folks. Well, quick uh, ask for your, um, your tolerance here with me. So uh, I am in the middle of a move. Um, I will be actually doing the move uh, a week from when you're watching this, if you're watching it on Saturday. 
Um, so you may see my background change here. Um, there may be a day or two where we don't have a wealthy on video. I'm going to try to keep my schedule. I'm going to try to do five to six a week like we normally do. Um, but uh, you know how moves go. Um, they're always worse than, than you can imagine. And, and when you get to the end of them, it's like a never-ending marathon that becomes a never-ending sprint right at the end. So we're right at that stage. Um, but hang with me, folks. Uh, we'll get through it uh, together and hopefully quite quickly. I'm, I'm going uh, to yeah. I'm gonna give you a free tip to help, it, help you out. Okay. Yep. So offer to help your wife to pack and then do everything wrong. And then she'll tell you just to leave her alone. And then you can go back to doing videos. Oh, dude, I've already learned that one. Um, <laughs> but I think I'm paying for it as we get close to the, because uh, because then there's the actual real boxes to move, right? She knows right. I'm not enough of an idiot that I can't just move a box, right? <laughs> Well, you may have to um, do yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So um, uh, real quick, folks, uh, this is the last time I'll mention it because we're, we're about two weeks out now. But um, the Wealthy on conference was two weeks ago. It was amazing um, for all the videos there. But but there are a couple that have been getting a lot of particular rave feedback. Um, one of the ones was uh, from uh, Rick Rule, where he shared over 30 stocks that are on in his personal portfolio that have his attention most right now. So if you're interested and you know potentially gaining access to uh, hard asset in investment based companies um, maybe for some of the reasons we mentioned earlier on about you know de-dollarization and whatnot um rick has given like i said over 30 companies 30 tickers to go and, and explore uh to watch that video as well as all the other videos from the conference and all the live q a just go to wealthion.com conference you can purchase the replays there um reminder you know there's a, a lot going on right now, as Lance and I have said. Um, you want to make sure that you are working, you know, under the, the guidance of a professional financial advisor who can help think help you think through all these macro trends and how they apply to your specific personal situation, then design a, a portfolio strategy for you. But but as you know, things go on here, as Lance and I have talked an awful lot about here, where active management is becoming so much more important in this type of environment. Um, they're, they're, you know, you want a partner that's executing this for you while you are busy living your real life, right? So if you have a good advisor who's doing that for you, great, stay with them. Um, but if you don't, or you'd like a second opinion from one who does, maybe even Lance and his team there at RIA, uh, just schedule a free consultation with the financial advisors that Wealthion endorses by going to Wealthion.com. Only takes a couple seconds to fill out the form. Doesn't cost you anything, no commitment to work with these guys. They just do it as a public service. Lance, as we wrap up here, um, anything else you want to say to folks before we we walk off in the distance here? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, you know, pretty much, you know, I would expect, you know, this market to kind of maybe pull back, you know, maybe early next week. If you're looking to add some exposure, you'll be able to use that opportunity. As long as the market stays above the 50-day moving average, you usually will pull back to add some exposure. Um but, you know, look, the market's in a bullish trend right now. Take advantage of it. And then just don't forget to sell once we get to the other side of this trade. All right. And, you know, next week, let's dig into um, if you have positions you like, uh, do, do you let's talk about the pros and cons of selling versus taking like a hedge on that position. Right, where you can stay in the position but protect if, if the market does move to the downside. Yeah. So we'll save that for next week. Exactly. Because you can also just sell a little bit. You don't sell a yeah. Bit. Yeah, you have to sell the whole thing. Absolutely. So let, let, let's dive into the mechanics of, of how you make those decisions as a portfolio manager. All right, folks, if you continue to enjoy these weekly market recaps, even one iota as much as Lance and I do, please do us a favor, support this channel by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And a reminder that we have had a lot of folks recently mention that they have not been getting the alerts when these videos go out. 
the way to get the alert is to click that little bell icon. That's what tells YouTube to inform you when we have a new uh, interview here on Wealthion. Uh, and for some reason, some people have been getting like th that alert's been getting turned off uh, on YouTube. So if you're a long-term viewer here, just go down and double check to make sure that's the case. Hey, real quick, can I say one thing? Since yeah. Talk about this. I've been getting a bunch of emails from people that have said like on Twitter, they're getting DMs from me about crypto. I don't DM anybody ever. So if you ever get a direct message from me or anybody in my firm, we don't DM anybody. So, you know, those, those are scams. So just be aware of that. Yeah, you're hitting a sore button here, Lance, because uh, same deal on YouTube, right? Where, I mean, I spend a good chunk, I probably 10 times a day, I go to the YouTube channel and spend, you know, 10 minutes every time deleting all of these spam posts by these these spammers that are masquerading as wealthy on um and i see the same thing happening on twitter too yep. um blanket statement for everybody watching this um uh, you will never get directly personally contacted by lance's firm or mine via social media and certainly not to sell you anything right and a lot of these are kind of crypto scams they're pretty yep. easy to, to to note once the scammer starts talking to you but but blanket statement, you will never get directly marketed uh, by our firms over social media. That's correct. All right. Um, all right. Thank Lance, thanks again for another great week. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching.